Hi, welcome to another episode of Brain and Butter. Brain and Butter is a podcast with the goal to translate psychological and neuroscientific ideas into tangible short bits of information that anyone can take home. If you want to know more about the vision of our podcast, listen to our intro episode. Today we're going to talk about how catchy emotions are and why it is important to sense and understand other people's emotions. Flora and myself, Lucy, will explore the significance of mimicry, emotional intelligence, and their role in social interactions, more specifically in leadership, and we briefly touch upon how you can train but also embrace your emotionality to the fullest. And today we have on our podcast uh, Gerben van Cleef again, who did our, uh, an episode with us previously on the functions and diversity of emotions. It's great to have you again here, Gerben. Thanks for having me. So the first question I want to ask you, Gerben, is how does one's person's emotion affect another person's emotions? So in other words, is there emotional contagiousness? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a quick answer. Yes, <laughs> I, I could leave it at that if you're short on time. Yes. <laughs> I could also elaborate a little bit more. Uh, yeah, no, very much. It's, um, it's, it's something that you see all around you when you start paying attention to it, right? It's as, as contagious as yawning, uh, I would say, uh, almost, perhaps, With, for certain emotions uh, specifically. So smiling is, um, is known to be quite contagious, but also frowning, uh, like expressions of sadness can be quite contagious. Anger can be somewhat contagious as well. And, and yeah, you see this happening uh, all around. People respond to each other's emotions in that way. In part, one way in which they respond is by adopting similar emotional expressions. And would you say that's actually a benefit? And if so, why would it benefit our social interactions? Yeah, one theory is that Adopting the same emotions that other people show allows you to get a better understanding of their internal worlds mm -hmm. because you would, to some extent, come to feel or empathize more easily with their situation because you're, you're portraying that same emotion. This is something that clinicians firmly believe in and also uh, work with. And there is one caveat here that, uh, in, in the sense that the, the full theory about how emotional contagion supposedly works is not very strongly supported. So yeah. it is very strongly supported that people mimic the emotional expressions of others. Mm -hmm. And this can happen uh, uh, through the face, uh, facial mimicry, but also postural mimicry can happen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, acoustic mimicry can happen. So people yeah. start speaking in the same kind of way. If you talk to a depressed person on the phone, there's an mm. old study from the 70s where they did that. People mm. actually became more depressed when speaking with a depressed person, partly also because they adopted the same kind of tone of voice. Wow. Um, so there, it seems to be a very powerful phenomenon. But when mm. you look into that second part of the, the theory where supposedly the fact that you adopt that same emotional expression somehow affects your internal uh, emotional feelings, yeah. that is actually not strongly supported or the, the evidence for it um, has been uh, well, somewhat debunked. At least one paradigm that they would use where people would put a pencil in their mouth mm. yeah. Um, yeah. and then rate cartoons and they would rate cartoons as funnier when the pencil forced them to smile 
sort mm-hmm. of then when it forced them to adopt a different kind of more frowning kind of expression yeah which is a very weird paradigm to start with uh, that <laughs> that study from the 80s i think it was was not replicated yeah. in a multi-lab yeah. uh, study. And yeah. some people concluded from that that therefore the whole theory is faulty. I'm not one of those mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, an overly quick conclusion to reach. Yeah. But it does beg the question of how does this then work? Uh, I think we sure. we see evidence that it is contagious, mm-hmm. but it's poorly understood exactly how this works. And mm-hmm. I could also maybe to add on that, imagine that we differ in that respect. Maybe there's more people who are easily affected by it, or let's say other people who can really just um, push it away from from there and like how it affects them internally. I could, would you, would you think that maybe there's also differences just across people? I think so, yeah. I, I don't know a lot of that work, but I, I do know there are personality scales yeah. that supposedly measure susceptibility to emotional contagion. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about their psychometric properties and uh, predictive validity, but um, okay. I, I do know that there are studies out there that have used them and have shown differences between people. Mm-hmm. And I think also just from um, experience looking around, I do think people are, are yeah do differ in a degree to which they pick up on others' emotions, just like people differ in, let's say, empathy yeah. or just yeah. social awareness uh, exactly. more generally. Some people are very much more focused on their internal worlds, let's say, yeah. and others are much more attuned to what's happening in their social surroundings. Yeah. And I would guess that these people are also more likely to catch other people's emotions. And uh, I think although that that study we also like learned about the the smiling study that might be not validated, but in neuroscience they also showed that when you see someone expressing emotion, they put participants in in fMRI machines so they could see their brain activity and mirror neurons fired up. So basically, uh, they had the same neuronal representation of that emotion. Even like uh, auto, like motor mimicry, so like the facial that facial areas of the brain uh, light up, but also like the eye gaze synchrony. But even like autonomic mimicry happened, so like their heart rate got aligned, and like hormonal synchronization also happened. So, in a biological and neurological basis, there is like this autonomous, uh, uncontrollable mimicry. And what I I think it definitely has the evolutionary benefit because they also showed this study with uh, with mice that one mouse was in a cage getting electroshocks and uh, conditioned that the sound was also present while the mouse got an electroshock so the idea with conditioning is that when the shock is taken away because the shock was paired all the time with with a sound for example even the mare's sound uh, will also uh, elicit this fear response And that was another mouse who was just watching this whole uh, scenario happening, but didn't get any electroshocks. But then later on, when the sound was present, this mouse also elicited a fear response. Mm. So that kind of shows that we really internalize other people's emotions and it's not just out there, it's it's outside of us, but we really uh, take it also uh, inside and experience it as well. So... Yeah, that's very true, uh, definitely for humans and also for for animals. And I think this is indeed part of what makes emotions potentially functional, uh, not just within the person, but also in interactions between uh, people or between animals. 
Uh, there's also a really interesting study that comes to mind by um, uh, Frans de Waal, who is actually a primatologist, okay. but he has occasionally apparently also studied humans. And he has one study where he had pictures of uh, wedded couples and he had pictures uh, from the, the day that they were wedded, uh, got married, mm -hmm. and pictures from, I think, 30 years or so later. Yeah. And he would show those pictures of these people separately, mm -hmm. uh, give them to participants, and ask them to match who they thought was married with whom. Okay. And they were... <laughs> well, that's a pretty hard task. And they were not able to do that above chance level based on the pictures of the wedding day. Yes. But they were able to do it based on the pictures that were taken 30 years later. Oh, that's such a great It's amazing, study. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. And so it's not really about emotions per se. But apparently yeah. something is happening that becomes in, ingrained on the face that if you spend several decades with a person or wow. in the same situation as another person, mm. yeah. it starts to show on the face. You It's are aligning, you're becoming one. Yeah. <laughs> it might be a totally off topic, uh, but it came to my mind that does it maybe also relate to the phenomenon or this like urban legend that... Uh, Dogs look very much alike oh. as their uh, owner. Yeah, I thought about that too. Yeah, yeah. I should the probably. The dog uh, probably adjusts its uh, facial it. expressions yeah. based on the owner. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Could be bidirectional. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe could that's a suggestion for a new study yeah. that we could run here at the UFA. Bring some dogs to the lab. Yes, yes. Um, I was wondering. What is the difference between mimicry and empathy? Right. Mimicry would be the um, external simulation or, or replication, if you will, of another person's behavior. So it's, it has to do with muscles. Mm -hmm. um, basically, your muscles becoming activated in a similar way to those of the uh, model that say that you are uh, mimicking. Yeah. And empathy is more about the internal experience of mm. the actual feeling associated with that, which which may or may not be triggered by uh, the facial activation. Mm -hmm. That that has to do with that study that was uh, is yeah has become debated. So the link between mimicry and empathy, I think, is not entirely clear anymore. But still, mm. it, it, if you ask any clinician, um, they would probably subscribe to. The, the usefulness of mimicking to some extent feeling yourself into the emotions of others to be able to better understand their 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 world yeah i guess the short the short answer would be the mimicry is really like the physical part of it and and um empathy is more of the uh the the psychological part of it if you will yeah and there's a concept that i think is gaining more and more attention it's called emotional intelligence especially also in like business settings and leadership um, I was wondering, can we maybe explain emotional intelligence and is it linked to empathy? Yeah, um, depends a bit on which model you take, but the most uh, influential model of emotional intelligence distinguishes among four different branches, as they call them. Mm -hmm. One of them being perce perceptual branch, being able to accurately detect or perceive emotions in others which in some yeah. ways is the may, maybe the basis of everything mm -hmm. because that allows for understanding and communication there's a separate branch that is really more about understanding your own emotions how they evolve where they come from how they relate to each other how they influence you mm -hmm. then there is a branch about the management of emotions in the self and others so the degree mm -hmm. to which you are able to regulate 
your emotions mm-hmm. uh, and other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. And there's one that is about uh, using your emotions to support your functioning. Mm. Uh, so, for example, understanding that uh, you perform better when you're in a, on a certain type of task, when you're in a certain type of emotional uh, state, mm-hmm. then bring yourself into that emotional state so that you can deliver that performance. And so is it related to empathy? Yes, I would say the perceptual part mm-hmm. is a, probably a requirement for empathy. Yeah. Because if whatever is happening to another person completely escapes you it's going to be very difficult to empathize with them or you would have to empathize based on knowledge of how the person must feel given the situation that they're in right that's also a route that you can take Mm -hmm. like you very very more cognitive yeah yeah, like perspective taking almost like oh i've been in that situation and i know i remember how i felt so maybe that person feels something similar and that would also allow you to relate to them but the more emotional route if you will would probably go through perception start with perception you perceive the other person's emotion and then maybe there's some mimicry involved or maybe there's a more a conscious a cognitive thought processes involved that allow you to understand what the person is going through yeah and i think that's also one differentiation between mimicry and uh, empathy that mimicry is usually this automatic unconscious processes that also takes place in animals but also in infants but empathy, especially like cognitive empathy, has been shown that it only develops around age of four when the prefrontal regions of the brain start to develop and uh, get more neuronal density. There are two areas of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex and the temporal parietal junction. So they are responsible for perspective taking and self-awareness, but also uh, awareness of other people. And it's been shown, which I think is really interesting, that in autism or, for example, antisocial personality disorder, these areas show a very atypical functioning. So they still might do mimicry the same way as infants do or like same way as we do, but their perspective taking or em- like level of empathy is impaired because they are also different regions of the brain, but also they're they serve different uh, functionalities. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely large individual differences, and some have to do with indeed clinical conditions. Others have to do with uh, more yeah subclinical mm. individual differences. In, for example, uh, indeed emotional intelligence, yeah, which yeah. Um, was a construct that was frowned upon for some time, but it has really made a re-entry into <laughs> the scientific yeah. uh, world, and um, I think for good reasons because it it has explanatory power. And Reben, if I'm not mistaken, I think you also did some research in the workplace, let's say about uh, leadership styles also and how that's linked to certain display of emotions. So I was wondering if we can uh, dive into this topic a little bit. Um, What role do emotions play in the workplace, especially in leadership styles? And are there certain emotions that you think uh, leaders should display? Yeah, that's always difficult. Um, I'm I'm always a bit reluctant to really give advice because there's hardly ever a simple yeah. answer to to a question like this. Yeah. Mm. Um, there are differences between people, differences between yeah. expectations. So, for for example, one classic study showed that um, people respond more favorably to 
anger expressions by men than anger expressions by women uh, female leaders okay. because they perceive those as um, somehow incongruent with the the, the feminine role whatever that is yeah. like yeah well like um, at least back then the, there was a pretty strong stereotype that uh, women should be nurturing and positive and mm. warm mm. and those kinds of things and men should be um, not not necessarily the opposite but more masculine or mm. dominant yeah. um, strong and so w- men would get away with showing anger as leaders but mm-hmm. um, women not so much mm. yeah which also illustrates some kind of a double bind that women are in because the emotion that would fit the general is sadness uh, but the <laughs> sadness doesn't fit the, the leader role. Yeah. So yeah. either way... Uh, it's a yeah, yeah, it's a paradox. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so for men, the way out is to to show anger and not sadness, mm-hmm. according to that study, which is now 23 years old. But mm-hmm. I think there's still... Uh, yeah, it still resonates with, with our current society, I would say. Yeah. And in my own work, we've looked at... Um, not at gender differences, but uh, just at um, two different emotional styles that leaders could use mm-hmm. uh, when giving performance feedback to teams. And in one condition, we would have a trained actor uh, show anger while delivering this performance feedback, which was otherwise entirely standardized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the other condition, uh, they would show happiness. Okay. And we found, and we and we then recorded uh, on a behavioral task the uh, performance of four-person teams. Uh, mm-hmm. as they were working. Yeah. Yeah. And we found that um, the effects of anger versus happiness were entirely opposite depending on uh, the makeup of those teams. Mm. If those teams yeah. consisted of people who were more motivated to think about mm-hmm. the world around them, uh, including the emotions, uh, more analytical, if you will, yeah. more driven to understand Especially. things, mm. those people would infer from uh, the anger of the leader that their performance was below par and that they should work harder and therefore mm-hmm. they performed better subsequently on the task. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas they would take the happiness of the leader as a signal that everything was well, yeah. which led them to you know sit back and relax a bit. Mm-hmm. But the other teams that were made up of people that were less motivated to think carefully mm-hmm. about everything, yeah. they would not take this information from the emotional expressions of their leader. They would just see this leader who was angry. Mm. They would also become angry. They would dislike the leader and they would become unmotivated to work for that person. Whereas if they saw a happy leader, they would also become happy, um, contagion. Uh, they would uh, like the leader better yeah. uh, and they would be more motivated and work harder for that leader. So it really depends. Very interesting. And I think in I think modern leadership and also team dynamics should just be focused on individual team members because I think we're all so diverse and so are the needs of every single person and the interpretation of emotions and what your study also shows, like there are some people who prefer this leadership style and other people prefer this leadership style. So I can really imagine that emotions are powerful in, you know, motivating. Uh, the performance or just uh, the desire to go all out, let's say, uh, in the workplace. But I think that the way you can catch people or take them along really depends on their individual needs. So I'm actually a proponent of introducing uh, personality tests in team settings Mm. because I think if a leader um, really wants to understand his or her team, it's very important to understand how the individual is thinking and feeling and what the needs are 
to align and then also be able, I think that's an important skill of a leader, to be able to align to those needs of every individual. So I think probably also what you say, it's very diverse and there's no right or wrong answer. But I think individuality and especially also from the point of view that our team dynamics are getting more diverse, there's more mingling of different cultures in the team setting. I think it's just really important to understand the emotions and how everyone interprets or reacts to certain emotions displayed by a leader of the individual. Yeah, I think that's very true. We, we have another study where we found that um, the individual difference trait, uh, agreeableness, one of the big five mm -hmm. um, traits, right? Also moderates responses to angry leaders. So people who mm -hmm. are rather low on agreeableness, uh, they don't really care about being all that friendly to others, mm -hmm. uh, which is perhaps not great for those others. Mm -hmm. But they also don't really care whether others are really super friendly and courteous to them. So they're they're pretty immune to mm -hmm. bluntness compared mm -hmm. to uh, high agreeable yeah. people. And what we saw in that study is that um, low agreeable people actually performed better when their leader got angry compared mm -hmm. to when the leader did not get angry. But high agreeable people... Uh, they they broke down kind of they yeah, they yeah, they were yeah. so busy processing that anger which was so at odds with their values yeah, and exactly, and how yeah. they were used yeah, yeah. to functioning and and what they would expect other people to do to them mm -hmm, yeah. they were they were so absorbed by that conflict that they couldn't uh, perform anymore and do you also think this leadership style is influenced by the type of job or kind of industry that you are in because i could imagine that Maybe the more analytical jobs or more strictly uh, structured uh, jobs require maybe this uh, angry leader, very traditional power leader, while I think that the more flexible and creative jobs might, might not. But it's just, was, were there any research on, uh, on, on this or it's more about your personality and not really about the job that you do? I mean, there are probably differences between industries in, um, let's say, norms and rules, yeah. written or unwritten, yeah. about which emotions are fitting for the job or yeah, yeah. appropriate. Like there are yeah, all sorts of different kind of communication rules between, mm. uh, between industries. Mm -hmm. But I, I haven't seen research on that. But what I could imagine is that certain industries attract certain types yeah. of people no, so in that yeah. sense that could be kind of like a moderating effect that certain leadership emotions function better in certain industries but because of a certain type people. of person exactly. yeah. is found to be working in this industry so mm. maybe there's just a link there and what i was also wondering was there any research on whether respect or fear is a better motivator when you look up your leader like if a leader is very respectful but like very nice and a happy person is it or that's again uh goes back to personality and uh yeah this reminds me of some work or yeah a, a literature on um social rank where people make a distinction between dominance and prestige which are seen as two pathways to a higher hierarchical positions and influence and and rank if you will and dominance is more closely linked to what you see in many animals, uh, mm. just you know, being bigger, being more muscular, being more in, uh, physically fit or intimidating. Yeah. And you definitely see that in some leadership styles as well, um, yeah. uh, definitely among men, but sometimes also among women. And this is something that, that can be effective in the sense that it can enforce people into submission out of fear, usually. 
Yeah. Not because they really want to, but because they fear for their job or for their uh, life in the worst case. And the other thing, pr uh, prestige, is more about actual respect indeed, and uh, um, which you can gain by being really good at what you do yeah. or providing value to the group, like looking after other people, uh, being a good um, citizen, so to speak, and um, a role model that people can yeah. learn from. Yeah. And and that is something that is has less clear parallels in the animal world. It seems mm -hmm. to be more of an yeah, evolutionary part that was later on added to our system. Yeah. yeah, that is something that most people respond well mm. to. But there are contexts that really ask for this more dominant approach. Mm. Uh, and in those contexts, you do see, like in the military, for example, and probably also certain industries, mm -hmm. you see um, more leaders who show that kind of approach. And okay. I would guess that with that approach also comes a greater proclivity to show emotions like anger, for example, and much less with people who are in a more prestigious type of industry where it's really about, you know, just show me what your value to the group is. You don't mm -hmm. have to bang your fist on the table. It's not going to make <laughs> yeah, a difference, yeah. right? Yeah. Like in academia. No context for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And I was wondering, because there are a lot of actually companies uh, who offer these leadership trainings of many, many types. So also there is this neuro training hype now that basically you get this neurofeedback and how it works is the leader is, for example, go go to the, the training and says, okay, I have anger issues. I want to, or anger management issues, I should rather say, and uh, I want to work on that. So they put the, this person into a game-like kind of scenario. And if you respond in a, in the undesirable way, you get a kind of penalty. And if you respond in a very empathic way or not, not in an angry way, then you get like a reward. And then they claim it's quite a controversy, uh, but they claim that it, it might help leaders develop a better style of leading or they can change these very core emotional responses they have. And uh, I was wondering what you think about it, if you heard about this. I don't know about that, that particular uh, approach. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I do think that um, some training can be beneficial to certain people, at least if, mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, awareness, like the thing that we just talked about before, the fact that there's no one-size-fits-all solution, yeah. I think is already going to be eye-opening to yeah. some leaders. And whether it's emotional style or just any other type of leadership style, I think really contingent leadership is is the key to success uh, and not just bluntly doing what you always do because it worked previously. Mm -hmm. If you're faced with different people or a different workforce, uh, you might find that it doesn't work anymore and then you have to reinvent yourself and be adaptive and flexible. Mm. And I think that also comes um, uh, is true for, for your emotional styles, which may you know be more or less functional depending on the individual that you have in mm -hmm. front of you or depending on the cultural context yeah. or maybe indeed depending on the, on the industry. And do you think leaders should get like a training like this? Because I do feel that many leaders get like competency training or when they need to show that they are they have the cognitive or physical or whatever functioning but i think it's not really common yet to have like an emotional training for example yeah i think it could be beneficial it's, it's ironic because some sh some work shows that people who are higher on emotional intelligence have a greater chance of emerging as informal leaders in in self-guiding teams and there's also some work that they might actually be more likely to end up in formal leadership positions, which suggests that there's some appreciation nice, yeah. right, for people <laughs> who are emotionally sensitive. Yeah. But the irony is that once they 
get into those positions, they lose some of those skills or perhaps they don't lose the skills, but they don't apply them as much anymore because mm-hmm. they're, they're faced now with all these challenges and multiple people or maybe sometimes dozens or hundreds of people or thousands of people that they are responsible well, for. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, huge pressure and they mm-hmm. lose some of the um, empathy and, and uh, emotional awareness. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that is trainable still at that level. Mm-hmm. If you're really like a CEO of a, of a big company and your job is to fire thousands of people, it's probably better <laughs> that you're not too emotional about it yeah. because you wouldn't be able to do that job. I could hardly do it. Yeah, and I think it's like an important, I think, takeaway message is that it's, uh, I think emotions and emotion responses can be shaped. So it's it's not like hardwired, there is training and there is a way to, to shape these responses, but there's also core emotional elements of yours that is just the way it is. And I think for a certain type of jobs, like a leader should have qualities that, yeah. That, that is good how it is and uh, necessary for, for the job. So, And I would also say it really depends on probably the level of social interaction that you have with employees as a leader. Like the more you're interacting, closely interacting with your people, I think the better you should understand them on an emotional, on a cognitive level, how they work in that sense, mm. what their needs are. And then just shaping an awareness that this is an important part of you know, what makes people motivated and um, also how they perform and how they just also function in a certain work setting. I mean, I think it's also important to address mental well-being nowadays and just to shape already awareness that you should, I think, as a leader, have your eye on that is um, important. Well, thank you, Gerben, again, for being part of our podcast and being on the episode. This is really interesting. And thanks for sharing all the research and the knowledge. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you.